All right, so today we'll look at the last part of Isaiah 52, moving into 53. I basically, it's not so much an exposition today, but I want to bring a theme across from this particular text, and here it is, that Jesus Christ suffered as our substitute. Now, that's not a doctrine that is very popular, but it is, you're going to see it from the text here today. Now, I brought with me a little packet from home today. Can anybody tell me what this is? Stevia. Now, stevia is supposed to be a substitute. Uh, I know some, some people don't like the taste of this, and they'll say, man, I'm glad that's a substitute, right? So how many of you don't like the taste of stevia? You're like, man, you like, give me that refined sugar anytime, right? <laughs> Give me the real stuff, supposedly, right? This, uh, I think this stuff's supposed to be more healthy, but uh, yeah, it does. It does have a little bit of a weird taste if you're not used to that. And substitutes are interesting things. They, they a substitute is supposed to take the place of something else. So here's the question: As we think about Jesus Christ being our substitute, how does a substitute usually compare to? The original. Well, <clears throat> I played a lot of sports, and uh, I, sometimes I wasn't the greatest at those sports, so I, I know what it's like to be a substitute when it comes to sports, and it's a little embarrassing because the substitute isn't supposed to be as good as the starters who are on the court or the field. So compared to the starters, or they're, they're not usually as talented of a player as a starter. But how does Jesus Christ, your substitute, compare to you? Well, of course, the answer is uh, the substitute is far better than the original in this case. But here's a big question to consider. Was there any other way for God to save human beings than by sending his son to die in their place? Well, that's a, that's a, I purposely made that a trick question. It's, it's important for us to realize, first of all, it wasn't necessary for God to save any people. Okay? So you need to recognize that. God didn't have to save people. He wasn't obliged. He didn't have to do with that. Uh, we, if, if everybody went to the lake of fire or hell, then, then we would be getting exactly what we deserve. And so in this sense, the atonement was not absolutely necessary in that sense, but once God, in his love, decided, well, I'm, I'm going to save people, well then, there's, there's several passages in Scripture that actually indicate there was no other way for God to do this than through the death of his Son. So, therefore, having said that, the atonement was not then, it wasn't only uh, not absolutely necessary, but it was then a consequence, if you will, of God's decision to save some people through the atonement. You say, well, where is where does Scripture say that? Well, for example, um, you remember that, that, that time Jesus was talking with some disciples who were on the, uh, going from Jerusalem, they were on the road to Emmaus, and, and uh, Jesus was having that conversation there, and he says, uh, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary 
that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. So, so even Jesus recognizes here, hey, it was necessary for there to be a substitute. And since Christ suffered and died as mankind's substitute, then there's a question for us to consider. Why was it necessary? Why was it necessary? Another way you could say it is, why did mankind need a substitute? Well, the short answer, and we can see the answer here in, in today's text here in Isaiah 52 and 53, is sin. It's a short answer. That's the reason we need a substitute. The Bible's pretty clear. We are sinners. And you'll see that, again, you'll see that here in this particular text. You say, well, we weren't originally sinners. Uh, God originally made everything very good, so then how did we become sinners? And, and particularly, how did I become, and you, become a sinner? And some people say, okay, you know, that's great. Uh, you know, sin. But what does Adam sin? Adam and Eve sin, but what what does their sin have to do with me? I mean, I mean, uh, Adam and Eve lived a long, long time ago, several thousands of years ago. But the Bible says we actually sinned in Adam and Eve. And that's why you've got verses like in Romans that, that mention, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So that's how you and I became sinners. But the Bible also shows us here in, in this text that we practice sin. So not only did you inherit sin, but we, we we're sinners by nature as well as by our actions, if you will, and our thoughts. So sin's generally defined as an infraction of any of God's commands. It's, it's anything that doesn't conform to God's own character. Uh, for example, when you read the Ten Commandments, why are those things sin? Because they're, they go against God's own very nature and his character. So, for example, God is truth, and that's why we shouldn't lie, okay? Uh, you know, we don't steal because because uh, God has, that's just who God is, right? God doesn't steal. God gives ownership and tells us not to covet even other, not even to, to want and have that strong desire for other people's properties. But Isaiah used several different words for sin here in, in chapter 53, Let's uh, let's just start reading in verse 1 here. And then take note of the, the different kinds of words that Isaiah, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses here. So verse 1, Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that's Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned, everyone, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Notice that last phrase in verse 8. It's clearly showing us substitution, isn't it? We have a substitute. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He, Jesus, was stricken for the transgression of his people. Particularly verses 5 and 8 uh, call our failure, if you will. He calls it, notice the Bible calls it transgression. Uh, another form of that word could be, uh, well, it is translated transgressors. So transgressions, what you do, the person who transgresses is called a transgressor. It's used twice in verse 12. Look at verse 12. It says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He should divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now it's, you, you see these words over and over again, showing us what is our, our big problem. The problem is sin. So it's not, in some sense, it's synonymous with sin, but it, it, they they got little different variants in their understanding. It, it's It suggests a violation of law through ignorance here. So when you see the word transgression, it's it's more of when we sin out of ignorance. It's, it's not an outright rebellion. I know what I'm doing against God. And then in verses 6 and 11, Isaiah uses the word iniquity. That carries the idea of just just outright perversity and depravity and rebellion against God. So, so I mean, same outcome. We still sin. It's just it's this person who who is involved in iniquity knows that they're sinning against God. And notice the word in verse twelve. Verse twelve. Uh, the end of verse 12 talks about he bore the sin of many. So there's a, there's a third word mentioned there. And that contains the thought of you missed the mark. You have swerved aside. You, you've gone off the road, off the track. So you're no longer following God. You're, it's, it's like an archer. If you think of an archer who has a bow and arrow and they, they aim the, the, the arrow at the target pull, pull the, the bow and the string back with the arrow, release it toward the target, but it never hits the target. They've, they've missed the target. They've missed the mark. And that's literally what the, your word there, verse 12, uh, the word sin, it means you've missed the mark, you have swerved aside, you've gone off the path, off the road. First John defines sin as just sin is lawlessness. First John 3, 4. So it's defined as lawlessness. In other words, what does that mean? It's, it's a violation of God's law. 
It's a violation of God's law, and it's a very serious problem for every one of us. It's, it's our greatest problem, in fact, isn't it? We've missed the mark. By the way, what's the mark? God's holiness. <laughs> uh, God's holiness is the mark. Uh, we're not holy, so that presents a problem. Because Romans 3 tells us all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. So again, they're, they're, that's giving you the mark. The mark is the glory of God. We've all fallen short of that. We've, we've missed the mark. It's like, it's like that archer trying to aim at the target, shoot the arrow at the target, and the arrow falls in the grass and doesn't even get to the target. So the truth is nothing new here. Because Isaiah also believed that all people are sinners. So it's not just a, a New Testament principle, or it wasn't just something with Paul or Jesus. But notice, look at verse 6 here. Verse 6 clearly shows us this principle. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So how many have iniquity? All. How many have turned aside, <laughs> missed the mark, gone off the path? All. And so these words are vividly picture here this sinfulness of all mankind. We've all missed the mark of God's holiness. We're all headed in the wrong direction. And instead of pursuing God's will, we're seeking whose way? Not God's. We're seeking our own way, it says. So, that brings a consequence, because all have sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and if you miss the mark, then there's a consequence. And so we need to grasp what the results of sin are before we, or anybody else for that fact, can then appreciate then what God has done for us. You can't really appreciate Christ and, and, and his substitutionary atonement until you recognize who you are. And that's why it's it's difficult. You ever had a difficulty trying to witness to to a religious person? It's challenging. I find it challenging witnessing to some religious people who think, well, I'm basically a good person. And so you, it's difficult. If they think they're basically a good person, they don't recognize, well, where they're standing before God. Why would they want a savior? It's challenging, isn't it? And so let's just think here for a moment. Uh, the, the consequences of sin, number one, is alienation from God. That's the first consequence of our sin, alienation from God. Uh, what did Adam and Eve do as soon as they sinned against God? They're running and hiding, trying to cover. <laughs> they don't want to talk to God, whereas before they enjoyed his, his communion and fellowship, walking with him in the garden. And so the most terrible result of sin is it cuts us off from God. It's, it's a separation. So mankind's highest destiny is then to know God by being in personal relationship with him. But this God whom we ought to know is not exactly like us. Yes, I know we're made in his, his image, but we are not God. We are not, we are not just like him. In fact, uh, if you look over at chapter 59... Look what God says about himself in chapter 59. <clears throat> 59, verse 1 says, Behold, 
The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So that's alienation. That's separation from God. And that's what we did. We destroyed the relationship with our sin. But number two, a, a second consequence of sin then is you and I are, and everybody is, is in bondage to ourselves. We're, we're slaves to sin, the Bible says. Sin doesn't, it doesn't just alienate us and separate us. It actually enslaves us. It brings us into captivity. And you need to know a very important truth about sin. It's more than an un, just an unfortunate outward act, or it's more than a habit. It's actually something that's deep-seated. It's, it's inward corruption. So it's not what you do. Okay? There's a lot of people think, well, sin is something I do. No. Uh, the sins we commit are just merely outward manifestations. It's just showing what we really are on the inside. In fact, this is Jesus teaching himself. Listen, listen to Jesus teaching. Here's what Jesus said. He said, from within, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Jesus says, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So it's not, don't, don't think of sin as, as something you do. It's not just an outward manifestation, okay? Why did you do that? All right, if you, if you do sin, you can ask yourself, okay, what was, what's, what's inside me that caused me to say that, to think that, or do that sin? Because there's something within you that's causing that to happen. So, you are in bondage to self, the Bible says. That's a problem. And with that, with our sin, then comes a penalty, the Bible says. And some people ask, well, is, is sin serious? Really? I mean, come on. Is sin serious? We're all sinners. <laughs> right? You, you've, you've seen those, those videos of great comfort, people... You know, they try to make jokes about their sin, right? And, and, they, and, and Ray asks them, so what does that make you? What do people say a lot of times? Well, it makes me a human. <laughs> I'm a human being. Well, I, yeah, that's true, but they don't recognize the seriousness of their sin when they, when they talk that way. And since everybody sins, we can't just accept it and, and live with it. And the fact is, you, you cannot live with it because the Bible says... That sin brings forth death. Sin brings forth death. There's consequences. So because sin then violates God's law, a punishment must be paid. And if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, in Genesis, uh, God told Adam, don't eat of that forbidden tree. And he told Adam, for in the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. There's consequences. For sin, And so we find the, the death penalty for sin 
is mentioned uh, many places in Scripture. For example, even Ezekiel said, the soul that sins, it shall die. The soul that sins, it shall die. Of course, you know, Romans says the wages of sin is death. So there's, there's lots of places you can see in Scripture consequences for that, the penalty, sorry, there's a penalty for that sin. And so because all people are sinners, all people are under the sentence of death, there must be a penalty paid. Divine justice requires payment. That's the way it's always been. And so sin cannot be ignored. Either we must pay the penalty ourselves for our sin, for all eternity, separated from God, or you can accept the substitute who pays the penalty for your sin. That's, that's the only two choices there is. Either you do it, or Jesus has done it. And that's why we need a substitute. So we come to, to Jesus here. We see we clearly need a substitute. I, I, don't, I don't want any of us to pay for our own sin, because we can't. Now Isaiah 53 here gives us several places where you can see this language of substitution. Man, it's, it's all over, in fact. Look at, look at uh, for example, verse 4. Notice the language of substitution. It says in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. <laughs> verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Verse 6, again, you see that uh, the end of verse 6, the Lord has laid on him, laid on Jesus here, the iniquity of us all. The end of verse 8 uh, talks about how he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 11, the last part there, uh, he shall bear the iniquities, bear their iniquities. And then verse 12 uh, the end of it says, he bore the sin of many and makes transgression for the transgressors. I think I got them all. <laughs> Do you get the point? There's, We need a substitute. And it's clearly showing that Jesus Christ is our substitute. So I, I, I hope that's pretty clear. Well, we should then, uh, if, if we've recognized that we need a substitute, then we should immediately see a problem here. The problem is, where can we find a suitable substitute? Because clearly the Bible says we're all sinners. We're, we're, we're all in the same boat here, aren't we? Uh, none of us can, can deal with that penalty for sin for somebody else. We have no hope of doing that. So that creates a problem then. Uh, so we find the suitable substitute, of course, in Jesus Christ, who then pays the penalty for sin. How did he do that? By giving his life for us. But the question remains whether he was willing to do this as our substitute. Was he willing or was he, uh, you know, there's, I've heard theologians and scholars try to debate this stuff. Oh, was Jesus coerced into this or did, uh, you know, did God the Father make his son do this? Did Jesus do it willingly? Well, if you look at just this text alone, hopefully it can answer that question for you. We find embodied right here in the language of Isaiah 53 an interesting proof 
that Messiah submitted himself to the suffering that he endured. And so the language here shows us this. It's passive voice. And when you see passive voice, it just means that the subject of the sentence here did not do the action. Didn't do, didn't, in other words, Christ did not take the action. He was acted upon. Just look at verse 5, for example. You'll, you'll see these, the passive voice comes out with the verb was. Was. Look, look at verse 5. It says, but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, where else do we see that? Uh, you moving on verse 7. Again, you see that passive language. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. In fact, verse 7 mentions he didn't even open his mouth. Verse 9, uh, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. <laughs> the, uh, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off. Anyway, do you get the point? There's it over and over again. If you keep reading, you'll see some other ones there showing that that passive voice. Notice also that in verse 6, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yahweh, that's Lord. And then verse 10 says, it it pleased Yahweh to bruise Jesus. Now, do you understand what's going on there in, in that language? Who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Jesus died. Well, you see both God and man here even in this text, showing us it was both God and man that had a part in our Lord's suffering. Yet Christ, we see clearly, submitted himself to this suffering. Why? Why did he do that? Well, look at verse 11 of uh, chapter 53 here. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I think verse 7 actually is probably the the clearest statement of Christ's submission. It was a voluntary submission. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So unlike... Sheep you might see wandering around in farmers' paddocks sometimes. They're not always quiet, are they? They are a lot of times, but not always. Christ, though, we see he was he was quiet. He was submissive. He became the sacrificial lamb of God that John the Baptist announced in, in John chapter 1. He, when he saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, The view of Christ's death that 
Isaiah is presenting it to us here is called what theologians call penal substitution. I just want to mention that if you if you don't remember that's fine, but this is this is sadly a doctrine that is is under fire, under attack even today. See, penal substitution. What's that? Well, Christ's death was penal in the fact that he bore a penalty. He bore a penalty when he died. Remember, what's the penalty of sin? Death. He bore. He died in your place. He bore the penalty. His death was also a substitution. Why was it a substitution? Because he was a substitute for us when he died. So then you don't have to die. And so this this view of atonement is sometimes called, uh, another way of, of saying it sometimes is a vicarious atonement. So penal substitution, vicarious atonement, same thing. So I hope when you see those words in songs or books, I hopefully they mean something to you. Uh, what's vicarious? Well, maybe this will help. Maybe you've heard the shorter version of that in the word vicar. You've heard the word vicar. Uh, a vicar is somebody who stands in the place of another. A vicar is somebody who represents another person. So Christ's death was vicarious in, in the fact that he stood in our place. He represented us, and that's why some theologians like that that term vicarious atonement. So he was our representative. How did he do that? He took the penalty that we deserve. Well, last time I mentioned uh, some needs that we as sinners have. I just want to repeat those so that we hopefully get them ingrained in us. And then I want us to see how Christ's death then meets those needs that we have as sinners. Okay, and then, and then we'll be done. So here's the four needs that, that every sinner, that's everyone, all, all, all we like sheep, we've gone astray. Here's the needs we have. So number one, we deserve to die as the penalty for our sin. Two, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. Three, we are separated from God because of our sin. And then four, then we're in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. So the four great needs. And you'll see in Scripture, Christ meets all four of those needs. Now, I've just pulled out some various Scriptures I really like from other portions of Scripture to show this. So, number one, we deserve to die as a penalty for sin. So, we need, then, a sacrifice. And so, to pay the the penalty of death that, that we deserve because of our sins, Christ comes, he dies as the Lamb of God, the, the perfect sacrifice for us. So you, in Hebrews, you see Christ is the best in, in every way. For example, Hebrews says he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. How? Hebrews says by the sacrifice of himself. How do you put away sin? By the sacrifice of himself. So Christ is the sacrifice. He, he lived the life the perfect life that you could never live and became the perfect sacrifice. Uh, another thing we, we need to take note is uh, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. So you need propitiation. So when 1 John 2 talks about propitiation, you need someone who bears God's wrath against your sin. So propitiation has the idea, uh, it, it's removing 
from us God's wrath that we deserve. So Christ dies then as a propitiation for our sin. Big word. It just The idea is uh, God's wrath is satisfied because of his son. So for example, you'll see that language in, in 1 John. It says, in this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us. What do he do? How, how does he show it? He, he shows it by sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Well, number three, our, our, our third need as sinners is we're separated from God because of our sins. So if you're separated, then what do you need? You need reconciliation. The Bible mentions us being at enmity with God. So to overcome our separation from God, you need somebody who can then provide reconciliation and bring the, uh, the, the two parties back into fellowship with one another. Sadly, you can't do that on your own. And so that's why 2 Corinthians, for example, talks about this. It says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So now, because of what Christ did, you and I can become the ambassadors. We can become involved in this ministry of reconciliation. Our fourth need is met by Christ through this this big word we call redemption. Redemption. So we're sinners. We're in bondage to sin. We're in bondage to Satan. We need somebody to provide redemption. The idea of redeeming is buying back. I like I like thinking of it buying back from the slave market of sin, and so when you speak of redemption, there's this idea of a ransom that that, that might come into your minds. Uh, in fact, that's biblical language. A ransom, by the way, is just a price paid to redeem somebody from some some slavery or a captivity or a bondage. It's the kind of language Jesus uses in Mark when he says uh, that the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So it's kind of like, uh, let, let, let's, let's take sea pirates, for example. Uh, I'm not going to pick on a particular country, but uh, you, you probably have one in mind. These sea pirates go out and they like to capture these ships, and then they'll, they'll demand a ransom. They want money. Uh, they don't necessarily want the ship. <laughs> they, they usually want money, right? And so they demand money. Sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. But if they do, that's a ransom. And then, then the, the, the owner of the, the ship can have the, the people in the ship back. Well, the Bible says in Hebrews 2.15 that when Christ came, he died to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. In fact, according to Colossians, it says that God the Father has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's a real ransom. Talk about a, boy, what a reversal there. And so, Well, then some people, they, they read these scriptures and they don't take it personally. So let me try to make it personal for you. What about your sin? What about your sin? As for deliverance from bondage to sin, the Apostle Paul 
in Romans chapter 6. You, I hope you're familiar. If you're not, you can, you can look at it for yourself. Uh, Romans 6.11, after Paul clearly shows we're all sinners, <laughs> He mentions uh, that we can't just keep going going on sinning and expect that grace is going to abound. We don't understand grace. We don't understand God's forgiveness and what He's done. If that's the case, and so so after that that discussion, he comes in Romans six eleven. He says, "So you also must consider yourself dead to sin." and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Notice what he says in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So there's a command in verse 11. Consider yourselves dead to sin. That's the negative side. The positive side is, okay, you're, you're dead to that, but now you're, you have a new master. A new master. You're alive to God because of Jesus Christ. So praise God, we've been delivered from this bondage, been delivered from our guilt, sin, this bondage that's over us, causing us to, that rules in us as the great power before we're saved. It just, it just crushes us. Can't do anything else other than serve ourselves and Satan. But because of the work of Christ, we have a new master. Christ conquered sin. He conquered. He dealt with your greatest problem because he became your substitute, which you could have never done on your own. And so there's a lot of things we can learn from Isaiah 52 and 53 here, but if you get nothing else from this part here, remember, you need a substitute because you're a sinner. You have a substitute. His name is Jesus Christ. And so that's why it is vital. It is crucial. Very serious issue that we must put our trust, our faith, our belief in Christ and in Christ alone. There is no other substitute. If you don't put your faith in that substitute, then you have to pay the penalty for your own sin. But you don't have to. Isn't that good news? So because of that, God's people then can say what? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son to be the substitutionary atonement. He was our vicar, if you will. He took our place. He, he represented us uh, on, on your behalf so that we don't have to do it on our own. So may we really believe this and, and act upon it. May it be a great, precious, comforting truth that just drives us in so many ways. Uh, may we, uh, as we celebrate uh, Easter time, may we recognize who Christ is and what he has done. May we not try for one nanosecond to even attempt 
to do this all on our own. It's just, it's an exercise in futility. It's dangerous, deceptive. May we see the the seriousness of that error, and so cause us to believe in Christ. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.